Hello and welcome back to the Vinyl Community Podcasts. This is David Bianco from the YouTube channel Safe and Sound Texas Audio Excursion. Today, it's part two of my interview with Prince's audio engineer, Susan Rogers. Uh, have you ever worked with any artists that like, you know, you know, sometimes people do things that are what I call gimmicky in a sense that they, they pan, you know, audio mm -hmm. and do, and sometimes it, it has a place like Led Zeppelin's whole lot of love when the thing's going around yeah. in a circle, it has a place, but sometimes you'll hear a voice and it's the same voice and it'll go left, right. And it's just like, <laughs> what, what is, what are they jumping and running around from one oh. side? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you ever run into that kind of, uh, and, and where does that come from, do you think? Or, or maybe you haven't had that experience, but I've always yeah. been curious about Two it. answers to that. And when I was mixing in the early 90s, I definitely tried out some of that stuff because with mm -hmm. Prince, he led the show. So I didn't have, right. there weren't too many occasions in which <laughs> I could experiment with him. But with other artists, I tried a few things in the studio while mixing and quickly realized this is doing nothing and it feels like a gimmick. It's I don't have an artistic aesthetic reason for, for doing this. But the flip side of that was uh, in the early 90s, I made three records with the band Gegita. They were a duo yeah, yeah. signed to David Byrne's label. Oh. And Geggy was the now very famous producer, Greg Kirsten, known mm. for his work with Adele and Beck and Foo Fighters and Paul McCartney and... Uh, Grammy-winning producer, and the Ta at that time is Tommy Jordan. Both of these guys were uh, highly trained musicians. What they were trying to do is explore the parameters of what music is and what you could get away with. On that first record, on grand opening, they employed a technique called hocketing, where you've got a, a line, a, a, a lyrical line, Welcome into the world, spinning a swirl on her soft spot, the fertile slot. It's a girl, let her run the show so we don't rot. And they alternated back and forth between Tommy and Greg saying these words, hocketing. Mm -hmm. It was my first exposure to it, and it was cool. It was cool, but we had, in that case, we had an aesthetic purpose. It was pushing this boundary of music to to explore music, art for art's sake, and see what we could make work. Uh, and, and and frankly, I think it, it worked pretty well. So if, if there's intentionality behind it, it's cool. But if there's no intentionality other than, oh, I just want to do something cool for cool's sake, then I think it's gimmicky. Yeah, I think I think Chicago had a song called Dialogue Parts 1 and 2, and they were two different perspectives of like the war and political things. And the singers on those had kind of left and right biases a little. So it kind of gave you uh, that perspective of left and literally left and right. And yeah. it was just, it was so intentional. And I interviewed Chicago uh, in 77 when I was a DJ and they said, yeah, we, the producer, William James Guciero, he, he saw that vision kind of thing. And so that's when it works. It's great. Hmm. It does. So that's, and, you know, that, that makes me think of uh 5.1. And ah, surround sound. I'm glad you brought that up. And I don't work in it because after I got my PhD, I went right to teaching and I'm a college professor now. Uh, so I haven't mixed in 5.1, but I do remember, I'm old enough to remember the era of quad. And I remember when recording studios tore out the back wall and the control room and put in extra speakers and the solid state logic console had the front back pan pod and quad went away 
just as silently as it arrived. Quad disappeared. It didn't work. In other eras, we've tried having sounds come from behind us, but I can tell you as a neuroscientist, human beings evolved to be a little bit alarmed by things, sounds coming from behind us that we can't see. We don't locate sources behind us as well as we locate them in front of us, of course, because our eyes are in front and the shape of our penne, our ears, is designed to assist the eyes with interpreting the sound that's coming from the front. So something that's coming from the back is likely to be more, I think, aversive than appetitive or, or rewarding. Mm -hmm. uh, and talking to mixers who are working today and are mixing in surround, they say that, yeah, basically the only thing that really works pan to the back is something that, that is fairly steady state and doesn't change. A keyboard pad or something like that that can be just considered like atmosphere or the ocean or wind in the background, that's fine. But anything that's rising and falling that has dynamics coming from behind you, doesn't tend to be pleasant to most listeners. Yeah, no, I, I get that. I tend, and I have quad albums, I have 5.1, but I tend to sit back more and, oh. and do an, a volume adjustment between them. Okay. So that I get the effect. It's coming at the core more the side, but it's, it's really, you're right, because it's just, there are tracks where they distinctly will bring out an instrument. And I'll uh, the Toto four and five point one. The there's a lead guitar that they just hard pan right rear, and it just is. It's it's interesting because you can hear more detail, but mm -hmm. it's so over your shoulder, distracting. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know that. Uh, so I mean, I've been through it, and I a lot of times. I mean, for me, I like the uh, the. Uh, intrigue or the experimentation of listening to it and that type of thing but it's not really like a default mode for listening for me yeah uh, me too but, me too but, but but ironically some things were built for quad like dark side of the moon was mixed originally for quad mm -hmm. and it is a great it is a great example of being done right because it gives you that spatiality without that specificity. Right, right no. exactly. Yeah, right. that you put it you put it very very well there that um things that are just denoting an acoustic space like a pad or reverb returns or something like that that's fine but the something that's specifically a sound source that's specifically behind you uh, is not something that our human brain is evolved to be especially comfortable with yeah. we have to get over that that reluctance to it yeah yeah and it 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 like you said, it came and went, and there there is some now that's being done. Uh, but it's it's a niche. It's a very much yeah. a, much a niche. There's no doubt uh, in in the industry. So, what do you miss most about being in the studio? I guess now you're academically based. But what what uh, what what would you say that would be? Oh, the great big loudspeakers. You know, the big monitors and listening to. To the sound of instruments and performances just coming straight out 
Those big speakers, says so. The late neuroscientist Jack Panksepp said that sound is a special form of touch. And we mm. don't get that at home, unless you've got a very expensive uh, sound system at home. You don't really get that experience of just being bathed in sound. That is great. But uh, even more than that, it's the interaction with performers and serving as a mirror to help performers achieve their musical goals by reflecting back to them. That's what your performance just sounded like to me. That's what I heard in that. That's what I loved about that. That's what uh, you, you lost me at that part there. Can we try it again and, and see if um, anticipate this section just a little bit, you know, get us to lean into that change your dynamics here. That sort of interaction with musicians is just incredible, really yeah. incredible. Yeah, and I would, uh, I would guess, and I, I, I'm not sure if this is uh, the way it went, but I could just imagine Prince kind of uh, having really pulled himself up by his own bootstraps and coming through. Uh, he probably had some people who worked with him on records and and musicians that maybe weren't the the well-known go-to people like maybe Fagan and Becker would use, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. people that he gave a shot or that he wanted to evolve into uh, that. I can, I just, his spirit just seems that way to me. Yeah. He was very much homegrown. He, he liked to take young folks who were talented, bring them into his fold, showcase them and, uh, and also help develop their ear and their abilities according to his ear and abilities. Wendy Melvoin is a perfect example. She had her 18th birthday when she was a new hire in Prince's band. <laughs> she wow. was on stage celebrating her 18th birthday. She's just a kid, a talented, talented kid, uh, someone who was, was, was truly exceptional, but uh, he developed her talents even further. I'd like to think that he did that with me as well. He transitioned me from that tech role into a more artistic engineering role. And I'm yeah. forever grateful to him for that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, once once you do have an end product, how much, uh, uh, in other words, a, a two-track tape that says, okay, I'm done, or a file, if it's digital, whatever, uh, how much did uh, the artist or anybody involved get involved when the mastering was done in terms of that? I imagine listening mm. to test pressings and those kind of things went on to some degree. Yeah, it, it ran the gamut from uh, like Prince actually being present at mastering. When I was with him, he always worked with Bernie Grundman down on Sunset Boulevard, Grundman mastering. And uh, Prince and I would go and we'd, we'd give our, our thoughts to Bernie. I might say like on this particular song, the snare is just way too loud. Is there anything you can do, Bernie, to pull that snare down a little bit, EQ it so that we lose some of the body of that snare? Or... Uh, we we kind of soaked this one in too much reverb. Can can you can you sh shave that off a little bit? <laughs> so Prince would be right there with his instructions. Uh, other times, though, the artist would just leave that up to the producer. When I produced some records, I would go to to mastering just by myself because the artist they didn't care. Uh, just just get it done. Send Not me there. the test pressing, and I'm sure it'll be fine. If you like it, I'm sure I'll like it too. So mm -hmm. it ran the gamut. It was always nice when they were there, but uh, they usually didn't have too much input for the most part in the mastering phase of it. And what the producer is listening for is this is the last chance this is it. to make any <laughs> little corrections before this thing goes out the door. And sometimes you do need a little bit of help uh, with your mixes or yeah. uh, mixing is the only thing you can really affect at that stage. 
Did you, because uh, I mean, when you were, Prince was kind of came in as vinyl was moving out and digital was moving in. And then in the 90s, it was a lot digital. But did you ever have any experiences where uh, the ma mastering was done for CD versus LP, for example, and they were different and how you saw those differences or mm. uh, what your perspective is on that? Yeah, it was both vinyl and then a little bit later on CDs when I was with Prince. So you do have to master differently. Uh, for vinyl, of course, you got to be really careful with that low end. If the low end is just too, if it's too much, if there's too much energy in the bass, it, it's, it's not going to work. So you'd have to tame that a little bit for your vinyl. And you wouldn't have to worry about it quite as much for CDs. The CD quality is better now than it was in the 80s. Sure. CDs in the 80s would skip. And that was really, really, really frustrating because there'll be flaws in the manufacturing process. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah, it was it was mastered a little bit differently. You mentioned earlier that transition from analog to digital, and that was a big one, a mm. big one for every recording engineer. So um, analog is uh, analog tape anyway is analogous to film. In, in film, you open up the aperture of the camera and photons of light saturate the film stock. And when you look at something that's been um, captured on film, you uh, it's beautiful to watch how the light softly transitions into the shadow. Light and shadow just have this beautiful blend between the two of them. It's, it's quite lovely on film because of the way light is soaking into differentially the film stock. But on digital video, dink, 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 it's projecting at you. It's a pixel that's pink poking at you. Mm -hmm. And likewise, in digital audio, <laughs> there is no smooth, uninterrupted transition from signal to noise. It's signal until the least significant bit is like, eh, hell, we're out of here. And then there's no noise floor. So the tail end of your symbols. Uh, the tail end of your reverbs disappear into nothingness. And what that gives you is just like digital video. It gives you sharp contrast, saturated colors. Cool, cool, cool. It's all nice. You get precision. You get high resolution. But you lose the smearing of the spectrum that happens in analog land. On analog tape, your colors are smearing a little bit. And to some extent with vinyl as well that noise floor right there the signal there's the noise floor you know where the boundary is in digital floor so in listening to cds we had to get acclimated listening to a form of clarity and and an absence of distortions that we'd always kind of counted on mm-hmm did it did it affect then your perspective of uh, on the recording end of it? Yeah, it did for me. I'm sure it did for all engineers. I used to have a heavy hand with the tube equalizers. Uh, I had a heavy hand with that low end, low end frequencies. I always loved that, but I had to back off uh, after after a certain point, especially for vinyl. You had to back off because you'd lose it all in mastering anyway. I could have more of it in the digital realm but i never i never um fully learned because i never had to 
recording in digital audio workstations. I worked up until the year 2000, and all the work I did was on analog tape. I knew how to EQ for tape. So when you EQ for tape, you have to add some extra high frequencies. The reason is that tape doesn't retain those high frequencies as well as it does the mid-range or the lows. So just in the storage medium itself, it's gonna it's gonna self-erase. It's gonna kind of lose your high end for you a little bit. So you had to add an extra boost so that when it did diminish, you'd have enough high end on your record. Yeah. Uh, in digital, you didn't have to, didn't have to worry about that. So when we EQ'd our normal way for a digital record that was recorded digitally, it would often sound just way too bright. We had to learn how. Yeah, yeah, to calibrate that, that's for sure. And, and now um, some of what's going on in the industry is this um, taking analog tape and backing it up, they like to DSD or a digital stream data to first preserve the tape. I mean, the tapes are wearing, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, some of these actual manufacturing processes of... Um, what they call a one step, it took out the mother and the father plate and mm-hmm. it just uses a lacquer. So if you're gonna if you're gonna make like in the case thriller just got re-released 40,000 units, the lacquer is good for a thousand. So you would have to run that tape 40 times to get 40 lacquers, which is very wear intensive, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So now that that's why they went to DSD, the mobile fidelity thing we were talking about earlier uh, before the show, that's why they went and took it to DSD uh, to get that file captured as the best copy that exists, obviously, right now, because tape can only go one way and that's downhill. (laughs) Mm, Yeah, (laughs) archiving is a big deal right now. So tape is, as you say, going to degrade over time. The oxide has a binding material. The oxide particles are blended with this binding material and it's stuck on a backing. And depending on how the tape is stored and where it's stored, if it's stored in a humid environment or a dry environment, an environment with rapid temperature fluctuations or uh, perhaps an environment with a lot of salt content in the air, like in Hawaii or Miami, it's going to degrade at different rates. Different formulas of tape uh, have a different level of robustness. Some of them are more robust than others. Um, Tapes that were made, this is kind of a fun fact, tapes that were made in the early 70s had great variety to them, in part because uh, an international consortium outlawed whaling. Right. Whale oil used to be used in yep. in some of the glue that was in uh, in tape, and when they said no, no more yep. oil whale oil products, uh, tape manufacturers had to scramble to find adhesives that would work, and some of them worked better than others. That's right. Yeah, because went whale oil that was a, a very good solution, and it worked for so many decades. But you're right, that interruption uh, created certain different formulas then and certain brands and uh, formulations worked and others didn't. And we see it now later. (laughs) Yeah, I'm told by my friend Andrew down in uh, Miami who does archiving, he says scotch tape is holding up pretty well. Ampex tape, he always has to bake it. And Mm. then as you said earlier, you usually get one run. You bake it, you you get one pass on a tape machine, so you better not mispatch any of your signal routing because you have one one play to get from this tape 
to a digital storage medium. Digital storage mediums, however, they're going to have uh, issues as well. Software goes out of date, uh, computers crash, and and once <laughs> once those uh, those bits are scrambled, it's gone. Mm-hmm. So we have to really know what we're doing when we're storing things digitally as well as analog. Yeah, it was even, uh, I read a recording recently that they, they made and they had the azimuth set wrong. And when they mm-hmm. when they put it to digital archive, somebody who knew it really well listened to it and said, what happened? And they said, did you set the azimuth the way it is? And the guy went, oh, no. <laughs> well, that's a shame. Yeah, yeah. That's so shame. that's the thing about analog is there's a devil's in the details, right, with a lot yeah. of those things, of course. But uh, but that is it is happening more and more, and it's uh, it's just a reality of time. There's no way around the physical nature of that. <laughs> There's a fellow, uh, the the late John Stevens, who made the world-renowned Stevens tape machine. He said at dinner once. He said, "There's only one way to preserve something in a way that it won't decay." And we asked him, "What's that?" And he said, "Stone tablets. <laughs> Stone tablets will last." thousands of years yeah nothing else does right and thus that's why the ten commandments were put on there i guess just (laughs) just to prove a point (laughs) yeah very subtle right very subtle (laughs) well that's great what adventures do you have coming up uh in your future what's going on besides your educational work and of course your your book Oh, so it's it's so wonderful. I just recently became semi-retired and I moved to the country. I'm out here in Cairo, New York, and mm-hmm. a scientist friend of mine sent me an empirical research report that showed that Cairo, New York is the site of the world's oldest tree fossils. Wow. They found the world's oldest tree fossils here in in Cairo. So I'm here and I'm going to be living the country life. But right now I'm touring a lot, promoting the book and uh and and teaching and and writing. And my 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 jam, as the kids would say, is auditory neuroscience. And um, I'm hoping to make a a greater contribution to the field of the science of auditory neural neuroscience. Uh, that that's what I'm, that's my chief interest right now. Sure. Yeah. And will be, I think for life. Right. Yeah. And it's very interesting. I, I'd done some research in this uh, a few years back and I I resurrected it recently. And, you know, this whole idea, we talk about this, uh, you know, how your music has such a connection where I can immediately remember easily where I was when certain things happened related to music. You remember lyrics that you haven't heard in 20 years, you know, and you can't yeah. find the you can't find the keys that you left three minutes ago, mm-hmm. and you know, and so you'll get in a little bit of that in terms of your your knowledge and 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 what's really going on with all that. Yeah, that is really a a field of uh, endless capacity for exploration. So <laughs> the field of music perception and cognition is relatively young. They only really got going on that in around the year 1980, and they've just for the past 40 years, they've been doing the fundamental basic exploration of what our brains are doing when we perceive music. And then they branched off and began differentiating between musicians and non-musicians when we perceive music. And we know a lot about that now. And by the way, when I use the term musician, I'm talking about that the way that scientists do, meaning someone who's had five or more years of formal musical training beginning in childhood. That's a musician's brain 
which is different from the actual practice of music, which you can start at any age. So anyway, the next frontier now is individual differences. Uh, So now we're really getting into the weeds of how our brains get rewards from music listening. And there's a great many ways that we can we can experience this. There's the social status of saying, I like this band and not that band. Not to mention there's the the, the other sorts of attentional rewards and, and cognitive and perceptual rewards and sensation rewards. There are many different ways that we can be rewarded from listening to music and find music attractive. That's a, a, a field that's um, just now starting to get attention. And I'd like to think I made a contribution to it with with the condensing things I learned in grad school all into into this one book. Right. Yeah, I had uh, interviewed the other day and released a video uh, yesterday of a a, a company, not a company, it's actually a nonprofit called Spin the Spectrum. And Mm -hmm. it is helping autistic kids by the synergy of this speech language therapist and this DJ. Mm -hmm. And they are taking these and they are helping uh, it grow these kids that have been in a shell and they, cool. they, their motor skills are improving because of yes. their ability to do these things and make connections. And, you know, I'm sure their brains are just firing in a lot of places that, you know, maybe been a little bit soft over time. And the parents are saying the kid's talking now, the kid's doing oh, this, they dang. have coordination. Goodness. They oh. have, yeah. And it's like, my gosh, that is. And so for me, being a music person, that to me, the value of music and the value, it's just yeah. to two people with enough love to you know really focus on that. Because working with special needs, I have a Down syndrome kid uh, that's uh-huh. 22, I know. Uh, it, it takes a special kind of person to deal yes. with that. But yes. boy, you talk about kids coming out of their shells and uh, it's just, and they want to, I think they want to start this program, you know, further beyond Dallas. Uh, but again, it does take the right people, but it is such a great example of what can be done yes. and, and the power that's there. And I thought I wanted to mention it to you because I just thought, wow, that's just, it's a great combination right. of, yeah. of uh, so we, when we, we talk about uh, many musical behaviors, including sight re- reading and freestyle rap and things like that as being a whole brain workout because yeah. so many regions of the brain get activated when we're engaged in musical behaviors. Humans have these really thick bidirectional tracks between our auditory processing regions right above our ears and our motor regions right at the top of the head here. So listening to music causes certain brain oscillations to synchronize. And when our brains are in sync with an external stimulus, like a musical groove, let's say, that helps focus your attention. And it helps focus your uh, anticipation of when certain words like rhymes are likely to arrive and when that downbeat is going to come. So for young brains that have trouble with verbalizing here in that auditory cortex, one way To help them verbalize is to add a motor component to that, add a rhythm to it. 
add a rhythm to it and get them to anticipate on this beat is when you'll say this word or on this beat is when you'll hear that word. This works in uh, melodic intonation therapy for folks who've had damage to the right hemisphere here in the temporal region, brain damage. It works for stroke patients and people with Parkinson's who can be given rhythmic uh, rhythmic uh, therapy in order to synchronize their bodies, their movements to a simple beat that helps harness that uh, basal ganglia and that system that is struggling a little bit with the regular neural pulses that it needs in order to be able to walk with an evenly paced gait and put it to music and that can help with that. Stroke patients are being taught how to play drums because it engages left and right arm, left and right leg. And that's a really good therapeutic treatment for a brain that's suffered some organizational damage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a, the power of that is endless. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and as you said, a lot of this is relatively new, uh, mm -hmm. and, and it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's like when the Wii came out, a lot of nursing homes and places have those because it's easy to use and it keeps your yeah. motion, you know, and, and it's just yeah. amazing how some of these technologies properly leveraged can really add value to, uh, humanity in, in yeah. ways that we really maybe hadn't, uh, thought possible or thought, uh, as something that would apply. Now, interesting, something I just read, a recent paper, well, it's not a recent paper, came out in 2007, but it's recent to me because I just mm -hmm. discovered it. Memory for poetry is more robust than memory for prose, and it is thought it's because of the rhythm. Mm. Poetry, just like music, has regular rhythmic stresses, and there's something about the regularity of a musical signal or when it's put to poetry, that assists with memorization, which is why a lot of folks with advanced dementia who can't remember the names of their kids will remember the words to a song. There's that mm -hmm. rhythm that's involved. So right. music listening is not only enjoyable, but it is in some ways very good for us. And it improves our mood. That's been well demonstrated. Mm, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a go-to, right? There's definitely times when we need that, you know, and, and mm -hmm. even music and lyrics, which is poetry, I guess, to a certain degree, yeah. uh, they, they, they have the ability to create something you can relate to at the moment, even when it isn't positive, uh, and puts a perspective on things, but also the, the ability to, to grow out of an issue or problem because of something that, you know, is positive to you that brings back memories that are really strong yeah. and positive. Uh, so that's, you know, I've thought about doing something. I was going to ask you, I was curious about this. I had this thought about in nursing homes, you know, going to nursing homes and to trying to discover what music they might recall and play it for them and and make it available to them and let them tell a story related oh, nice. to related to the music because i think there's a lot of that i say trapped in there but a lot of that that isn't out and yeah. it would be a way to really i think i don't know why i just felt a calling to that recently That's when nice. yeah 
Uh, just, it's a little bit, uh, you can almost uh, encourage people or invite them to participate in a record poll, as we talked about when we go. began talking. Um, say, I'll uh, let's, let's have a poll. You do one for me and I'll do one for you. Play me a record that you love. Name it. We can stream it. We can find right, it. Sure. But we're going to listen to this record together. But before we listen to it, you tell me what it is about this record that you love so that I can hear it through your ears. And I'm going to do the same for you with a record that I love. That form of sharing uh, is 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 uh, is delightful. It's, now, sometimes people they know that they like a record, but they don't have the words. They they don't they don't know they can't describe why they like it. Right. In a record poll, we encourage each other and we set an example for others of here's how to talk about the music that you love. That's a generous gift, I think. Yeah, and, it, and sometimes it's a matter of the way it made you feel. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are certain songs that I, when I hear them, it reminds me of my mother because she loved those songs, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. And even if I didn't like them, I still, you know, you say Tom Jones and I think of my mother, you know, because, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, yeah, you know, or Engelbert Humperdinck or whoever was, yeah. you know, big at the time. And then she'd like some really off the wall, like Georgie Baker selection, Little Green oh. Bag in 68, which is. I remember that. Yeah. I so that I mean, in a long like, time. Yeah, I know. So it's like, you know, but it just creates that uh, connectivity that is yeah, just so true. good. So I think, I think maybe subconsciously I've been thinking about this because I've read the section of your book about the record poll. And I saw on uh, one of the channels a lady who wanted to go into Broadway and it, she could never make it, but she took her voice to nursing homes now and performs there. Great. And, uh, and I think that's really great that people can take their, um, you know, take that innate need that they have and get value out of it and, and to others. Um, yeah. It's, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's a beautiful way to communicate when we add pitches and pitch contour and dynamics and rhythm to words, we're adding a deeper emotional connection uh, to those words that we're conveying to someone else. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's just, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a gift that I think uh, uh, us in the vinyl community, always say we, we, a lot of times when you're an audiophile, you're really self immersive, if you know what I mean, Yeah, you're right. sitting down and just enjoying it and just, and that's fine. But there also is this part of music that you want to give back, you know, uh, and we do a thing called VCLT, which is love therapy, vinyl community love there, where you actually send records to people uh, oh, just, that's just awesome. out of the blue, uh, uh, which I will do for you as well, because uh -huh. I, I really, uh, th that's just a great way to to share and create that connection. So it, really uh, it happens. it happens in the community. So huh. great. Well, so you're going to be looking up fossils, I guess. That was interesting uh, to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to find where these tree fossils are because I want to see that. But uh, yeah, I'm looking at the clock here. I've got. I'm yep, giving a lecture sure. to a college in about 20 minutes. No so. problem. I'm. Yeah, I'm, I'm I really sure. Well, I appreciate you taking the time i i really wanted to try to ask some different questions and different approaches uh your work with prince is well documented there's plenty of interviews on youtube about it and i thought maybe we could uh, just kind of look a little more from the your 
professional uh, producing and engineering Thanks. and mixing, uh, because I think that's that's certainly our community is very interested in that, and I am. So again, I thank yeah. you uh, tremendously for your time, and I, I really hope you have a great holiday. Thank season. you, and to your vinyl community, I share your love. I share your love for that art form. We started by talking about uh, the introduction of digital mastering in yes in the in the making of uh, vinyl records. I, I I stand by I think what I said earlier. It it's it's theoretical, and in theory, I can understand why you would want a pure analog stream, which is certainly possible in mastering houses today. You don't. It's not absolutely necessary to go to digital, but when you go to digital at that stage. It can uh, help to remove impurities and it can actually help the process to make the final record a little bit uh, more clear and just a better listening experience for you. So certainly the aim is not to degrade the thing that you love. The aim is to enhance the thing that you love. And it's that love that matters the most. What a great way to end things, talking about doing things for the love of the music. That's Susan Rogers, who was an audio engineer for Prince and now is in academia, teaching our young people these techniques and approaches. And I think we're all to the better for that. So thank you here on Vinyl Community Podcast for joining me today. I look forward to our next time together. This is David Bianco. Take care, everyone. Well, what an interesting artist Prince was and a young female engineer leading the way in Susan Rogers. Stay tuned for part two of this episode, the interview with Susan Rogers on the next Vinyl Community Podcast.